We are entering into a narrative section of the Gospel of John. We've been through some of the teaching in John chapter 1. It came to us in verses 1 through uh, 18. And we've moved into the narrative section. Instead of pulling out every detail of every verse in the narrative, it is much better, I think, to keep the stories together as much as possible and teach them uh, the principles that we learn. And by the way, Anne is not here today. Uh, she had to, I don't think she's here. No, she had to go to the graduation, her son's graduation in Mobile. I, I did not tell her what my message would be about this week. But the name, the title of this message is The Correct Response to the Lamb. And so you have a visual lamb in front of you that might help you remember in your mind this message. Uh, in John 1, 35 through 37, we have a proclamation. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. We want to look at the correct response to the Lamb this morning. In the last part of this chapter, uh, John is recounting the witness of John the Baptist. The witness of John the Baptist to Jesus Christ and the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now six times in this chapter, he says John bore witness. In verse 7, if you look back at verse 7 in your text, he came as a witness, speaking about John the Baptist, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. We have verses 7 and verse 8 as testimonies about him bearing witness. Look at verse 23 in your text. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. This is him bearing witness of Jesus Christ. Look at 26 through uh, 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Here again, John bears witness to the fact that Jesus is divine, that He is the Son of God. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Him. Verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This should be challenging to all of us. Repeated over and over again in this section of this chapter, no less than six times, John the Gospel writer says, John the Baptist bore witness. He spoke about Christ. He told those around him that he was the Lamb of God, that he was the one who would baptize them with the Spirit. He was teaching them. He was witnessing to Jesus' divine nature and His authority over them. This should be a challenge to us. Why do I say that? Because this should be our life. We might hear John the Baptist saying this, I do not wish to be seen, remembered, recognized, or talked about. If you know only this one thing about me, let it be that I am bearing witness to Jesus Christ as the true 
Son of God. That sums up what John the Baptist was all about. Why else would he call himself a voice? Isn't that, isn't that a peculiar way to talk about yourself? I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Who in here wants to be known as a voice? Do you see a voice? Do you recognize a voice? Uh, physically, is the voice the attention that, in other words, you hear somebody talking and you say, you know, all you think about is, oh, that's a beautiful voice. You might think it's a beautiful voice, but no. A voice takes attention away from a person and puts attention on a subject. John's whole life was about one subject, Jesus Christ. And he was in the background. He will say that himself. I must decrease. He must increase. Here a man is saying over and over again, all I need you to know about me is that I'm bearing witness of Jesus. Now Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born from a woman. <laughs> and that's a big proclam proclamation. It's the only time we hear the Savior speak this way. Uh, not to strike at your pride too much, but we're not the greatest things that ever walked the earth. He's simply a humble witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Calhoun County would be served by a few people in this place taking the attitude of John the Baptist and becoming a voice, crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, becoming less visible and more heard. This is a tremendous thought when we take it into account. What if your epitaph uh, simply read this? Here lies one who has a voice crying out as a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. What if on your tombstone that's what they wrote? Would you be satisfied with that? Is that enough? Or do you need somebody to say something more about you? Do you need Here's somebody who talked about Jesus a lot, and they were a great guy. Here lies a man who talked about Jesus sometimes, but man, he was a wonderful father. What do you want written on that stone? What do you want the rest of eternity to remember you as? A voice crying out about Jesus Christ, standing in the background, not noticed by anyone or anything, not calling attention to oneself, but only pointing to Christ. We, we would do well to model our lives after this great prophet of God. Now, as I said earlier, I want to talk with you through every word, not every word of the verse in this section, but rather I want to talk to you about a point that John is making. And the point is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And there is a right response to the Lamb. Look at 35 and 37. Jesus is identified by John as the Lamb. He gives us that title. Now, there are several names for Jesus Christ or several titles given to Jesus in this section. We're going to go through those. You need to take a pen out probably and make note of these. This is very significant. There are ten references to Jesus Christ as something in this text, and all of them have meaning to you and to me. The Word. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 through 2. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word. He is eternal. He is divine. All of these titles have a meaning. He is the light. John 1, 5 through 9. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He is the light. The world is dark, and He is light. 
The lightness tries to overcome the, world, the light, and it cannot overcome it. The, the darkness, the sin, the evil, tries to darken it, dampen it, shut it out, make it born in an insignificant place, yet that is the plan of God, that He's born in an insignificant place, in an insignificant way, yet He shines for all mankind. He is the Word. He is the light. John says He is the Lamb of God, the title that we're looking at today. That first appears in verse 29. He saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says that again in verse 36. We have that for our text this morning. He's called the Son of God in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He is Jesus Christ in verse 17. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the rabbi in verse 38, which means teacher. He is the Messiah in verse 41, which means the promised one or the Christ. He is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph in verse 45. He is the king of Israel in verse 49. And he is, lastly, he gives himself the title, the Son of Man. Now, that's his favorite title for himself, to be called the Son of Man. He uses that title more than anything else when addressing himself. So there are ten titles here, but we're going to focus in on this one. What is John the Baptist emphasizing? Why is he emphasizing the name the Lamb of God? And I say it's emphasized because it's repeated for us twice, significantly. In verse 29, he sees, a group of he sees a group of people in front of him. Jesus is coming towards him. And he declares for everyone, Behold, the Lamb of God. In verse 36, the same thing happens. The next day, when he was with his disciples, Jesus is coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is John's, maybe John's favorite way to address Jesus. The Lamb of God. What is significant in this title? It's, it's, this is true, I believe, because two times he introduces it. That's why I believe it's emphasized. Jesus, standing with those near John, hears this title about himself. It is almost as if John is trying to uh, dispel their misconception that the Messiah was coming to be the king and to sit on the throne of David and rule over the whole earth. For over 400 years, the throne in Jerusalem was vacant. There was no king of Israel, really. And that line of David had been cut off even before that. The Jews received a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the Davidic line of the kings would not ever cease, that it would be an everlasting kingdom, and there would be one who sat on that throne who would rule over everyone, everywhere. And yet, David's line was cut off on the earth. And it seems as if that promise goes unfulfilled. And so the Jews had in their mind that God still had not fulfilled fully this covenant that He made with David. So the people were beginning to understand clearly that the Messiah was born. He was going to be born. The Messiah would be born in the house of David. As our Bible teaches us, Jesus was. He would conquer all of His enemies. He would rule from the throne of David. And in this way, God, God's Word would be made true. But John the Baptist seems to be drawing them away from this triumphant vision of a Messiah king on the throne in Jerusalem. John is pointing them that, out to them that Jesus is the Lamb of God, not the Lion of Judah. 
It's an order problem in the Jewish mind. They're expecting a king, and John is trying to say the lamb has to come before the line. If he's going to be your king, he must be your sacrifice, is what John is saying. This is the way that we should view Jesus Christ today. We should see him, first of all, as a lamb, a sacrifice, and then he will be our king, our line of Judah. It's important that we understand this so that we can have him as our king. If you don't see him as your sacrifice, he cannot be your king. This doctrine is under assault today in the Christian church. Many of you question this doctrine of the sacrificial office of Jesus Christ, the substitution of Jesus in your place. We're being taught that Jesus was a good example to us, an ethical and moral man that we should try to pattern our lives after. We're even being told that He didn't die in our place, but yet He was an example of how to die in dignity. We're being told that He never took anyone's place on the cross, but yet died for His own requirement, for His own salvation. But that's not what the Scripture teaches us. What does John mean when he calls Him the Lamb of God? The Old Testament, over 15 years of Scripture, bears a lot of meaning on this title. When it starts at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. If you have your Bible, I challenge you to turn to these Scriptures. You are not, you, it is impossible for you to be a Christian today and not understand that He is your Lamb. He is your sacrifice. Genesis 3.21 And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. In this passage, an animal, which is not named, but it is very important that we understand that there is a substitution of an innocent one on the place of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are guilty of sin and they deserve to be destroyed. Instead, God destroys an animal in their place. I cannot say what animal He used, whether it was a lamb, a bull, or some other animal. That is not the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm making here is that the gospel message was preached to Adam and Eve. From the beginning, the gospel has been proclaimed. This is not God's new idea in the New Testament. It's eternal. That there must be a sacrifice and it must be an innocent one who dies. I believe He preached the gospel to Adam and Eve that they believed the gospel. They trusted God for their provision of sacrifice for their sin and that is why they are among the saved. They're among the elect of God. Adam, listen to this. I believe this. Adam was saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. By Christ Jesus alone. Which he learned through the scripture alone. And it was all done for God's glory alone. In other words, Adam is in the heavenly family today just like you are in the heavenly family. He came by the sacrifice God would make in Jesus Christ. There's no other gospel ever in Scripture. This is it. 
Some people question why God accepted the sacrifice of Abel that we see in verse four. I mean, chapter four. I'll show you why. It's, I think this is very significant. As you come to chapter four, and Abel's is accepted, Abel's sacrifice, and Cain's is rejected. I've even heard people argue that Cain was gave a grain offering of first fruits to God, just like the majority of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were made up of first fruit offerings and not blood sacrifices. And so why is God not accepting this? Why did God not accept this grain offering? I believe that the answer is simple. God gave an example of sacrifice to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve carried these sacrifices out for their children. Taught them to their children. Abel followed the pattern shown by God. And Cain introduced a manly idea. Man's idea is being introduced by Cain. God's idea is being carried out by Abel. You read chapter 4, you won't find God say you can only offer animals. Yet if God accepts animals and not fruit, is it unjust? No, because the only thing God had ever shown the people was a blood sacrifice. At this point, there was no first fruit offering. There was only the tunics which clothed Adam and Eve to teach those who came after them sacrifice. And so, Cain was inventing his own way to worship God. That's why it should scare you, and it should scare me when we hear people saying, God doesn't care how you worship Him, just worship Him. Oh yes, He does care. Matter of fact, he spends whole books of the Bible telling us how he will be worshipped. He's always prescribed worship and he's always prescribed it in certain ways and acceptable ways. And Cain was not offering in an acceptable way. Abel understood and accepted the substitutionary sacrifice of God and Cain rejected it. And so Cain died in his sin. Cain showed that he did not believe God because he offered a Foreign sacrifice. Genesis 8.20. Flip over to Genesis 8.20. The flood is over. They've come off of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And he blessed Noah and his sons, and he told them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is this all about? Noah accepts the substitutionary sacrifice of God on his behalf. He recognizes he is saved not by his work, but by the work of God. And He offers up all types of sacrifice, blood sacrifices, on the behalf of His family and Himself. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham trusted that God would provide a sacrifice for him. In verse 8. Now we have the story that God tells him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Your promised son, the one I told you I would bless the nations with and through. And now God says, take him on the mount and kill him. 
They go with wood and his son and a knife and fire. They leave everybody at the bottom of the mountain. And as they're going up, Isaac, probably around the age of 12 at this time, based on the Hebrew word, looks at his father and says, We have wood, we have fire, we have no sacrifice. Verse 8, very important. The response of Abraham to his son. What? God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Abraham understood that a sacrifice is necessary if a sinful man will be forgiven. And that sacrifice cannot be given by man for man. That sacrifice must be given by God for us in our place. So they get up on the mountain and he builds this altar and he places the wood there and he takes his own son and lays him on the wood and he lifts the dagger. Still believing God would provide a sacrifice. Galatians tells us, I mean Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that he had faith that God would even raise him from the dead if he took his life. In other words, I believe God's going to give me a sacrifice in His place. And if He doesn't, then He is the sacrifice and God will raise Him up. I have faith in God and in His sacrifice. Look at verse 11. They get up on the mountain. He's laying there on the altar. The knife of Abraham is drawn and ready to go into his own son's flesh. And then in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. You trust God for salvation. You are not saving yourself. You trust God and His sacrifice. That's what that means, fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind was a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called him, the Lord will provide. What a picture of our salvation. Isaac on the altar, you on the altar of your sin. You deserve death. You are sentenced to death. And yet God provides a sacrifice. Instead of taking you, instead of taking me and damning us to hell, He provides His own sacrifice to take our place, to wash away our sin, to satisfy His wrath. And so we have the picture from Genesis 3, the picture from Genesis 4, the picture from Genesis 8, the picture from Genesis 22. I think you're gaining the point. Exodus 12. We'll skip some other sacrifices because we only have a little bit of time. And we'll go to Exodus Chapter 12. The Passover. Remember, John is preaching to a people. He's saying, Behold the Lamb of God to people who knew these Scriptures like the back of their hand or the front of their face as they had it tied to their face. 12. Exodus 12, the story of God about the Passover lamb. And we see that in this, the sacrifice is made, the blood is spread over the doorpost, and 
the people were to identify with the lamb how? By eating its flesh. They identified. They accepted the sacrifice of God and they practiced that by eating the lamb. And they said, if we are one with this sacrifice, it has taken our place. God clothed Adam and Eve in the righteousness of that perfect or innocent blood of, that lamb, of whatever He killed on their behalf by putting tunics on them. Here He's identifying people with the sacrifice by saying, eat it all and smear its blood over the doorpost. There's an identification, a substitution that's taking place. A spotless, innocent, male lamb that should be eaten for identification. Its blood covered the home as a sign. And all of those in that home are spared. And so we have the picture of sacrifice. We have the picture in the Old Testament of God offering sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 1 verse 11 tells us that the sacrifices of Israel were not sufficient. For salvation. Isaiah 1 verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. So in Isaiah 53 7, we find that God is going to offer a lamb. I'm done with the sacrificial system. I'm going to offer a lamb. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He who he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. God would offer a sacrifice and that sacrifice would be Jesus Christ. And this is the one that... John identifies as the Lamb of God. Drawing on all those pictures from the Old Testament, he presents him to the people. He is innocent. Jesus is innocent. Acts 7.52, Stephen says he is the righteous one of God. He is the substitute for our, our uh, sacrifice. He is the substitutionary sacrifice. Look in Romans 5. Verses 6-8, through eight, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for Himself. He didn't die as an example. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is... Innocent. He is the substitute that we need. And Hebrews 10 tells us He is our sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made His footstool, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is our sacrifice. John says Jesus is a lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God without question. What might still be in question is your response to Him as the lamb. Verse 37, And the two disciples which followed John 
hearing this, followed Jesus. John said, Behold the Lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. And these two disciples hearing it, left John and followed Jesus. It's not enough that He's the Lamb. He must be your Lamb. If you're to be numbered among His people, you must be, see Him as your sacrifice. It's no different today than it was with Abel and Cain. Either you can go through God for sacrifice, or you can try to make your own sacrifice. And the response will be the same. God will look on those who offer the sacrifice that He has required, which is His Son, and He will see His suffering, and He will see the travail of His soul, and He will be satisfied. Or He will look at the travail you do with your hands and be unsatisfied, and then condemnation comes for you. If you try to earn salvation through your own sacrifice, you will fail. Salvation is not universal. John is not... Look, the, the reason I bring that to you is because in John 1, 29, if you look up the first time John uses this proclamation, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we're given reason there to say, Oh, well, everybody's going to be saved. <clears throat> you do not need to make this mistake. The Lamb, just because He's the Lamb of the world does not mean that all will be saved. We need to understand this phrase. First, John the Baptist establishes the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we have done that, I believe, in the first part of this message. Second, John the Baptist identifies the universal sin nature of man. In other words, if there is a need of a sacrifice for the world, there must be sin of the world. And notice that he says sin, not sins. The word world, cosmos, as it's understood, can be understood in many ways. But here it's clearly understood to refer to all men everywhere of every tribe of every nation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 3, 11 through 12 says that sin is universal. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. We're sinners. We are all sinners. It is universal. It's not a local problem. It's not an environmental problem. It's everybody. So John establishes that Jesus is the Lamb. He establishes that he is the, uh, that the sin nature of man is universal. Third, John in this text, I believe, says that just... As the sin nature of man is universal, so the sacrificial of the lamb, sacrifice of the Lamb of God is sufficient for all mankind. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. We must understand that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all men. Everywhere. This is the idea of propitiation. In the New Testament, the word carries the meaning of a grounds for forgiveness. A grounds for forgiveness. Jesus Christ, John is saying in 1 John 2.2, is the ground for the forgiveness of everybody. And it is not included. I've heard a lot of uh, people try to argue around this use of the word world. They try to define it away. They try to make world mean something it doesn't always mean. 
are very rarely means. But I don't think it's necessary because the grounds doesn't mean that it's applied. It just means it's there. In other words, if there was one more person who got saved, would Jesus have to suffer more? No. He wouldn't have had to take one more stripe. He wouldn't have had to take an extra nail. He wouldn't have had to bleed one more drop. He wouldn't have had to suffer one more separation from His Father. It is sufficient. It is enough. And I tell you, His blood is so magnificent. His sacrifice is so grand. It could cover everybody who ever lived on the face of the earth. It could do that. The Bible teaches us that it is sufficient for everyone. But, this is not the only thing the Bible says about His sacrifice, that it was sufficient. It goes on to further clarify. God had elected that, that uh, God had, if God had elected, all men could be saved under the one sacrifice of Christ. They would still have to call on Christ for salvation. They would still have to come under His sacrifice on the cross. It was sufficient and it is sufficient. His sacrifice is sufficient for salvation of all. But before you believe that it's universal, the Bible says that His salvation not only is sufficient for all, but it is efficacious or effectual for those who believe. The Bible teaches everywhere that the, that the offering is sufficient. I want to make that clear. I believe it is sufficient for all. John three sixteen. For God so loved the what world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is sufficient for the whole world. In 4, John 4, 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. He is sufficient for the whole world. John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It is sufficient. It is enough. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, teaches us this same concept. Hebrews 2, 9, and then finally 1 John 4, 14, are clearly texts which teach us that His sacrifice is enough for the whole world. But that's not all that's said about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is efficient for those who believe. Look at John three fifteen through 16. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He covers the sufficiency with the efficiency with who it affects. Whoever believes. Then he says, it could cover everybody, but it's for whoever believes. You see that? It's very important. Verse 18, in that same chapter. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the, Son of the, only, the name of the only Son of God. 
There again, it is efficient. It does work for those who believe in Him. Verse 36 of that same chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are many texts. 5, John 5, verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in judgment, but has passed from death to life. Who has passed from death to life? Those who believe. John 11, verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John chapter 20. This is an idea John carries chapter to chapter to chapter, stressing it. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And it's not just here, but it's on through the Bible. Acts 10.43, Ephesians 1.13, Romans 1.16, Romans 3.21-24, and Romans 10.9-10. God has made a sacrifice that is so powerful and complete that there is no need for another sacrifice. It is sufficient for all, but it only goes to work for those who believe. Salvation is for those who believe. So the response that you should have to the Lamb is belief. And I want to make it clear, that is not a request. That is a command from Jesus Christ Himself. Matthew presents it as the way He presents the gospel. Repent and believe. He said that to the whole crowd. He commanded it. Not to do it is disobedient. You must repent and you must believe. You can sit in the service and hear the truth about the Lamb of God today, but it is useless to you unless you believe in Him for salvation. You must personally receive Him as your covering for sin. You must personally confess Him as your substitute sacrifice. The only correct response to the Lamb of God is to follow Him in repentance and belief. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God and the two disciples that were with Him followed Jesus. So will you follow today? I challenge you by the mercy of God to follow Him. You are a sinner. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Sin is universal. We have all sinned. And you will die for your sin. For all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what? The wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You deserve death because of your sin. And you have no hope except the love of and the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to clothe you in righteousness. I said at the beginning that God preached the gospel to Adam. And some of you gave me a weird look like, are you kidding? No. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 explains our salvation to us. And listen to what it says. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God killed that lamb or that animal in the presence of Adam and Eve. They watched Him suffer. And then He skint that animal and He placed that sacrifice over them. He clothed them in righteousness. And so when you trust in Jesus Christ, the same happens for you. He makes Jesus your sacrifice. He becomes sin on your behalf. And then He places Him over you, the righteousness of God. So that God no longer sees us in our sin. He sees us in Christ's righteousness. The gospel is the same today. And it requires a decision today as it did from the beginning of time. You must believe in your heart and confess Him. You can hear the message. It does no good. You must believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth in order to be saved. If God is calling you to salvation today, I trust that you will respond to His call for salvation. And I don't trust you. And I don't trust me. And I don't trust our wisdom. I trust the sovereignty of God. Romans 8, 29-30 says, For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those who He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. I read that in, in, in the 9 o'clock hour for our members class. And I did it for this reason. Our salvation is of God. But we are responsible. You can't sit here and say, well, if God wants me, He'll take me. He's given you a command. Repent and believe. And the truth is, He will give you the faith you must have to believe. He will do it. Why am I so confident? Because He has said He will. In that chain I read to you, if you go to Romans 8 in your time and in your prayer, if you go to Romans 8, 29 through 30, you will not see one conditional phrase. If this, then this. You only see guarantees, statements of fact, from knowledge before the foundation of the world to glorification after the world is over. It's all done by the sovereign hand of God. I know them. I predestined them. I called them. I justified them. And none of them will be lost. I will glorify them. God will do that. God will do that. He will do it based on Jesus Christ. If you believe. Let's pray. Father, we often are guilty of being overly confident in our own flesh or being overly confident in your sovereignty. Confident in our flesh that we think we can do like Cain and offer our own sacrifice that you will have to accept because we have done such a good job. There are people in this room who are living that way today. They are moral people. They are good people. They're better than the people around them. And so they think, when I stand before God, I'll offer Him my life and it will be enough. Father, open their eyes. Bring them to life. Call them to Yourself so that they might be saved. Because in their own sacrifice, they will not find salvation. 
they will find damnation for eternity. Some of us are overly confident in the sovereignty of God. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to believe anything. God's sovereign. If He wants me saved, He will save me. Oh Lord, forgive us for presuming on You. You not only are sovereign in calling to salvation, but You're sovereign in what, how we are called, and You are sovereign in how we respond. Help us to understand this. That You have loved us and you've substituted Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we can repent and believe by your faith that you give us. I have ultimately confidence only in you. I can't save anyone, Lord. They can't save themselves. Please, by your mercy, save those who are lost here today. Bring them to new life. Bring them to repentance and faith that they might be saved. And if it is so, it will be for your glory, not ours. We love you. We praise you as the author and the completer of our faith. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to ask that... Uh...